Welcome to The Mend, a podcast to learn about services and support for victims and survivors of crime sponsored through the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont. I am Anna Nassett, host of your bi-monthly podcast and show. And today on the show, we have Taylor Fontaine, a survivor and brave voice here in our state. This show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, stories, and concepts for survivors of crime. We wanna acknowledge our healing process and provide resources not only here in the state of Vermont, but throughout the country that could benefit victims of crime as they begin to mend. As we are going to be looking at community response, we're gonna be hearing about a story today of Taylor, and we're so privileged to have her here. But with that in mind, I always wanna offer a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss topics of healing. But with that in mind, we occasionally hear a story related to crime, discuss our mental health, or have sensitive subject matter. We urge you to listen at your own discretion. Today's episode, we are going to talk with Taylor Fontaine about her life and work. It is April, which means it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month, National Child Abuse Prevention Month, and Crime Victims Rights Week will be the last week of April. And I am honored to have Taylor here to discuss all of those topics with me as we honor this month together. So thank you for being here, Taylor. Thank you for having me. Yes. So Taylor was born and raised in Vermont and is an alumni of Champlain College, where she graduated with a BS in early childhood and elementary education. Formerly a teacher, she found a new passion in social work. Currently, she works with families involved with Department of Children and Family through a variety of services offered within the program. She works to support, educate, and empower families and building safety within their own family. She is also currently in school working towards a master's in psychology and outside of work and school, she enjoys reading, being outdoors, being with friends and family and teaching pound fitness. So Taylor, thank you so much for being here today. <laughs> thank you, I'm excited. Yes, um, so you know, we're kind of just gonna launch right into it. I don't normally start off by asking survivors to share their story. But to give context to the amazing work that you have done and the bravery you have shown, will you share with our listeners what you feel comfortable with sharing about your story and what led you to this work? Yeah, so I think one of the things I like to start off saying when sharing my story is that sharing it is still pretty difficult for me. So, you know, sometimes I get a little bit emotional and, um, just bear with me, but here we are. Um, so with that said, my story started um, in seventh grade. So I went to a sleepover um, at a friend's house after a middle school dance and her father had made us smoothies. Um, and we drank them while watching the wonderful movie, The Notebook. Um, it's a very popular movie, but um, while I was drinking my smoothie, I realized it tasted a little funny, so I decided um, not to drink at all. And we fell asleep shortly after this. Um, the next thing I woke up to was my friend's father molesting me, and I was in and out of consciousness due to him drugging us via the smoothie, which is why it tasted funny to me. Um, but once he left the room, and I mustered up the courage to find my cell phone and contact my mom. And I told her I had a nightmare and that she needed to come get me because I wanted to come home. Um, I awoke my friend, but it took 
a little bit to wake her up because she was also drugged via the smoothie. So um, I had to shake her for a few minutes to kind of get her awake. And I just told her I had a nightmare and my mom was on her way. So we walked downstairs. And as soon as I saw my mom's headlights, I went out the door. Um, but again, I was drugged, so I really could not walk straight and I started falling into the bushes. And so my mom immediately got out and put me in the car and was like, what's wrong? Like what happened? And I said, mom, he touched me. And um, I don't know what came over my mom, but she locked me in the car and went up to the front door and rang the doorbell and asked him if that happened in which he denied. And so my mom's like, I wanna to talk to your daughter. I wanna to talk to your wife um, and ask them. They said, they don't know what's going on. He again denied it. So my mom took me to the police station and we showed up to the police station. There wasn't anybody inside cause it was early in the morning. I don't remember what time late at night, early in the morning, but um, we called 911 and an officer in an ambulance met us. Um, I took my very first ambulance ride um, to the hospital where a detective met us. And um, the detective was so wonderful and careful with the questions she asked and everything. And um, I was still pretty out of everything from being drugged. And then a sane nurse, so a sexual assault nurse came in and examined me. Um, and during that examination, you know, I, one of the things I felt and sometimes still feel to this day is that it, it more felt like I was in a movie than an actual real life. Mm -hmm. um, but something that really stood out to me and made this like, real to me that something happened um, was when I was during the process they have you take your clothes off and change into other clothes and during that process my underwear was on wrong which as a seventh grader that's not something that's typical right. so that's where it hit me um, you know that something happened um, I might still not know exactly what had happened due to being in and out of consciousness, but something happened. Um, so, you know, after that, I tried to live the normal life as a middle schooler, going to school that following Monday, walking into a police officer standing there, not thinking much of it, but then realizing he's standing there because after this happened, my friend's father fled the state and they couldn't find him. So that period was very scary, not knowing how he would reta retaliate, if he would, what would happen. But um, like I said, I was going through the motions of someone who experienced um, something very traumatic, trying to live a normal life of a middle schooler, um, even though my world was turned upside down by it, a choice an adult made. Um, and months later, I was testifying in a high profile trial um, in the state of Vermont and I testified with my mother along with other girls that experienced something abnormal in the home but didn't wake up but enough evidence gave that something happened um, and my 
perpetrator was found guilty on two aggravated assault charges, as well as a lewd and lascivious conduct charge. Um, but later, the Vermont Supreme Court found, um, and this was the way it's explained to me, was there was a technicality where um, there was not enough evidence for the aggravated assault charges, so they were dropped. Mm -hmm. um, so they kept the lewd and lascivious conduct charge. Um, so it lessened his sentence time, which, you know, I mean, it lessened his sentence and everything. And, um, but it still, with that other charge, it ensured that he would serve time for the trauma that I endured at such a young age. And again, of course, that doesn't really change anything besides the security that he couldn't hurt me or anyone else anymore. So that's kind of the, the broad picture of my story. Thank you so much for sharing that with me, Taylor. That takes a lot of courage and um, just so much bravery to have gone through that at such a young age and to stand up um, within the criminal justice system and to be sharing with us now. Thank you so much. Um, our stories are how we educate and you've definitely helped a lot of people educate, so thank you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've kind of talked a little bit and gotten to know each other. Having gone through the criminal justice system at such a young age, when did you first tell your story publicly and how did people respond? Yeah, so besides having to tell it over and over again to lawyers, um, the trial, what have you, the first time it was very public was actually my freshman year of college and it was in a child psychology class and um, I can't remember exactly what the assignment was but it was something along the lines of what your childhood was like and how it shaped you into who you are mm. so I struggled for a little bit trying to figure out what I was going to write and then I realized like this really was such a big part of my childhood and it has shaped who I have become that it felt necessary and right to write about that. Um, and after I submitted it, the class after my professor came up to me and said, Taylor, I'm wondering if you would be okay with sharing your paper with the class because this is not a typical childhood people go through. And I think it's important to show people that this does happen and what the outcome does look like sometimes for people that go through it or children that go through it. So um, I took some time to think about it and I realized like, she's right. Like this is something a lot of people don't go through and a lot of people don't think of um, when you think of a childhood. So I decided to share my paper. I read it to the class and afterwards I had a few people that came up to me and thanked me for sharing my story and shared that they too had been something been through something similar whether in their childhood in high school in the beginning of college um and you know telling my story that very first time was so empowering but it was also really heartbreaking because for so long I felt I was alone in the experience that I had and that no one else could relate to it. And so this is what opened my eyes to, 
it does happen more often than we think. There are more victims out there of sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, what have you. And it really ignited my passion for advocacy and realizing that my voice is powerful. Yes, it is. Snaps to that. Um, <laughs> your voice is very powerful. And I do feel like, you know, we talked about this beforehand, like just that connection of knowing you're not alone is as equally comforting as it is heartbreaking because you start to understand that like, oh my gosh, this is so prevalent. And yet there is that connection and that theme. And, you know, I think, you know, I both, um, for us, we like to educate through storytelling and that's not necessarily how every survivor chooses mm -hmm. to heal. Um, but I just really commend you for finding a voice and we'll talk some more about what you've done with your voice, but it's really, <laughs> really impressive. Um, so yeah, thank, thank you. you. Um, so <laughs> As a child going through the criminal justice process, did you have the support of your family? I mean, we've heard a little bit about your mom, but I know you have a larger families or you know other family members as well. And also, mm -hmm. what was your experience like with police, prosecutors, advocates, et cetera? Yeah, so like you touched upon, I definitely had the support of my mom and the rest of my family and throughout the entire process. Um, and I think, although the trauma that I experienced in my own trauma, I'm coming more to terms with the trauma. It led my family as well. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that's something that we don't think of. Like, yes, I'm the one that went through the trauma, but those supports around me, also went through it with me in a different way. Um, so I'm just trying to learn more about that and everything, but I know that without their support and without them, I wouldn't have been where I am today. Um, and then speaking to other supports that I had throughout the process and that I still continue to have, um, one of the ones that I was thinking of when I'm thinking of supports is like the not immediate family members or the community members outside of like police officers, prosecutors. And um, I had a lot of support when it came to that from my aunts coming to Vermont for the entire trial, sitting front row um, to family, friends and community members that were there too, or reaching out, making us meals. Um, but I also do think it is really hard for me as to speak to my experience when it comes to supports from others because I was so young that mm -hmm. and I went through such a big trauma at such a young age I blocked a lot of the trauma pieces which is a typical trauma response um but from what I do remember um it was a lot of positive relationships that were made and um, a po more positive experience. And I think one of the things that um, really stuck out to me was from the beginning, I was believed from when I told my mom to mm -hmm. when we went to the police station and told the police officer to the detective, the examiner and so on, I was believed. And I know that's um, not the experience a lot of survivors 
do experience when it comes to telling what happened to them. And I definitely feel as though if I didn't have that experience and that belief in me, my outcome of where I am today or even the trial or anything would have been so different. So yeah, I had a lot of natural supports and everything and the support of a lot of people. And some of it, I remember some of it, I don't, but I know that my experience was a more positive experience because I was believed. Absolutely. Um, the episode before this one airs is actually about the Start by Believing campaign. So there you are just like really like putting, you know, another great example of how important that is. And, and you know, I mean, how different these experiences can be if we don't have that familial support, if we aren't believed, if we don't have those resources, it really changes everything. Um, yeah. So... I want to talk about some of the work you've done here in the state using your voice for change. I know that you began to engage more publicly when the earn time rule was passed. Can you tell us just briefly about that rule and how, what was your role in that? Yes, I definitely can. So um, I believe it was in 2020, um, I received a phone call from the van service um, and I was in um, a role as a teacher and I was in the, the library at the elementary school doing my planning when I got this call. And you know, typically when you get that call, it means something big is happening or something's changing. And I was like, I have to take this. Um, but so I answered the phone call and they were informing me of the enactment of the good time rule. So that was the name of it before it got changed. Um, and the good time rule allowed inmates to begin um, earning time off their sentences for quote unquote good behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and when I got this call, I was very confused. I was very angry. I had tears in my eyes in the middle of an elementary school library because I wondered how this could have proceeded without the victim input, mm -hmm. which is the most important input when it comes to stuff like this. Um, so in 2021, I testified in front of um, the Senate Judiciary Committee and um, the House Committee on Corrections regarding this and amending this policy um, because it became a law that it was really hard to retract what was implemented. Um, so yeah, I testified along with my mom and another family that was greatly affected with this and other people that were like, yes, we need to right this wrong because we didn't get the victim's voices and now we're hearing them because we made this happen without mm -hmm. seeing the repercussions of victims. Um, so the policy was changed and is now called a the time mixed up but um it went into effect after shortly after we testified um and the amendment would no longer allow offenders um already in prison for serious crimes um to access this program 
um, and get time off their sentences. And this was basically because victims um, felt as though their bravery for coming forward and the sentence that was given was being taken away because they were taking less time from the sentence. Um, so victims like myself went through a lot to have this person in jail and then all of a sudden it's being, you know, and one of my big points was why do they get time off for good behavior when victims like me trying to be good in this world don't get time off my victim sentence? Yep. Um, and that was something very important to me. The downside of everything changing is that when this policy was in fact in effect, anybody that was being found guilty of these crimes moving forward have the right to the earned time rule. Um, but what was changed was for sentencing, victims would be told this is the the policies that we have to follow, and this is when this offender could get out mm -hmm. if they earn this much time. And that's a big if they earn. So they have to behave well. Um, and that, you know, knowing that they heard that we weren't heard up front and informing victims up front that this is happening felt a lot better, even though I really wish that nobody was getting time off for good behavior. I recognize the downfalls and the benefits of it all. And this was just a piece that we could right a wrong. Absolutely. And I mean, I think a lot of times, even though, even if you are involved in like trying to right a wrong or have that, just to know that you're being heard, um, really starts to bring you into that place of taking your own voice and your own power back. Yes. So I really definitely. commend you on that. Thank you. Yeah. So as you've begun working in the state through social work, you've started to see a lot and it's opened up your eyes to different types of victims in our state um, and different types of offenders and the barriers that are in their way to access services and assistance. Can you tell me just a little bit kind of about what you're, you're learning through that? Yeah, um, I definitely could speak this about this topic I think all day, every day, if mm -hmm. somebody would let me. <laughs> um, but I'll keep it simple to kind of the, the bigger barriers that I see when it comes to victims um, and moving forward. And I definitely, when I started my education career, I saw bits and pieces, but in the past year moving into social work, it's really opened to my, eye, my eyes to those barriers. And we spoke to this before, and I mean, the powerfulness of victim voices, but victim voices are one of the barriers that victims face is their voice is often lost in the process. Mm -hmm. um, and that's definitely one thing that I continuously see throughout my work and my, my own experience and everything. And then um, I think that's just because we are in systems where um, offender rights are more looked at than victim rights because the offender is the one being charged and we forget <coughs> about the trauma that some not, you know, what I'm trying to say, I guess is 
that their victims voices are often squashed in the processes because there's policies that need to be followed that aren't victim-centered policies or victim-centered procedures yeah we're still in a very offender-based system you know you're yeah. innocent until proven guilty as it should be but also the the way that the two parties are involved is still very offender focused yes yeah and then i think one of the other barriers that i see and we kind of spoke to this before when talking about supports is the lack of supports that some victims do have whether that be natural supports or what have you and um not having those supports and trying to navigate something so traumatic and then again a more offender-based world and trying to navigate that and not having those supports is another big barrier that I see victims um, facing. And um, by that, do you mean like financial supports, um, housing, um, English as a second language, um, advocacy lacking, just all of those things? Um, is that what yeah. you're speaking of? Okay, I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, like, yeah, no, that's totally fine. All those supports and um, one of the biggest things I definitely see is the lack of natural supports when it comes to, especially if like it's within the family and family members involved. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it comes down to supports of like the housing, like you said, um, family supports, um, food, all of that when it comes to supports are barriers that sometimes victims face, especially if we think about like domestic violence where they're trying to find a safe place to be and mm -hmm. to live and to get out of um, the situation they're in as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, keep educating. You're gonna keep making change in the state and just joining all the other amazing people in the state that are doing that work to start to really look at how we disentangle that. Um, which brings me, like you and I are both really passionate about victims having a place at the table like when decisions mm -hmm. are being made for them. And I mean, it sounds like when, with your situation, your mom was really alongside of you to help make those choices. But can you tell me about what, like the importance of having a place at the table as a victim, um, what that means to you? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that w when I like think of this is from the start, um, from the beginning of my story, I spoke up, which isn't, you know, something that typically will happen for victims or isn't the route that they take. And um, from calling my mom to the trial and to even now, um, and like I said, that's not the case for all victims and we all handle it and heal in our different ways and not one way is right or wrong. Um, but as I continue to share my story and um, I meet so many either uh, uh, so many other people that either haven't been able to share their story yet, haven't found their voice yet, or they did share their story and they weren't believed, or they're afraid to share their story because they see what happens if they do share their story, whether that's victim blaming, um, people not believing them, what have you. And, um, you know, I have this passion where I dream to live um, in a place where victims, you know, are not only heard, but they're believed and believed when they tell their truth and their story, um, when they find their voice. And um, again, victim voices are, 
the most powerful voices in the room. And I experienced that with this time earned. They realized that like, wow, we left a big voice out of this decision. And um, with that said, you know, we all um, have our stories and we can, you know, have similar stories, but we are the ones that experienced it and we know our story the best. And, you know, what I experienced is different from your experience is different from the victim's listening experience and finding the voice to talk about that is just very important to me. And um, the other thing I want to add when voice passion and finding your voice is like, it took a while for me to get to the point where I am right now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I spoke up that night, I spoke about the trial, but I was going through high school by the time this all happened. And I was trying to be, you know, your typical high schooler. Um, I didn't really speak on anything for about four years. I mean, I was going through counseling and everything, but when I first spoke about it, um, but I needed to give myself the time to heal and grow and find my voice to get there. So, you know, my passion comes from wanting to continue to find avenues for victims to heal and find their voice and use their voice because, you know, again, I cannot stress enough how powerful voices are. And that's why I'm passionate about my voice and using it and trying to help other victims as well. Love it. Love it. Love it. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I know. I think like, you know, one thing that's really important to me is, you know, you can't make decisions on my behalf without asking me about them and asking me what I want. And, you know, I think that that's something that luckily I was able to experience was feeling like I had some choice, feeling like I had voice, feeling like I was at the table. Um, and what a difference that made to me. But, you know, I always say this when I'm training, I'm like, you can't learn how to work with victims unless you're able to ask them. Um, and you know, to just like finding my own journey to story and finding that I did want to share it, um, has been so interesting, but I think you and I both know that people's, I think we both would probably say not every person who's experienced these things needs to tell their story. They might not want to. There's so many different ways to process and heal. And you may find that you do that through never telling a soul, and that's okay. But we definitely want to encourage you to find whatever is your thing that's going to help you. Um, Like my recent one that I've gotten into is macrame. Why? Why, Taylor? I don't know. But it makes a lot of sense for me. It's super healing, like standing around doing my macrame. Um, so I think that, you know, that's a really important thing for us to always remind people of, um, no, that's very true. I mean, we all find our way of healing and it might not make sense to one person, but it makes sense to you. So that's what you need to do for, to take care of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, so we've kind of covered some of these, we, we did a bunch of the questions in one right now, but that's okay. Um, I'm going to say, like, ask you, what would you suggest to victims and survivors listening today as they make decisions to report or not report, um, Mm -hmm. to look at options for what that would look like to them and start their own road to healing? Yeah, I definitely 
I've been asked this question in a different way before and it's so hard for me to speak to because um, again, everybody's story is different and the way they respond to their trauma is different. The way they heal is different. And um, so there's really no like one size fits all with suggestions, but I think to put it in a suggestion, suggesting way is um, again, do what feels best for you. Mm-hmm. Again, like you said, if that's not telling a soul, do what's best for you. If that's telling everybody in the world, do what's best for you. Um, and I know that's definitely, <laughs> from experience, I know that's definitely a lot easier said than done. Um, but you know your story, yourself, and everything best, and how you can move forward best. If one way doesn't work for you and you've tried that, it's okay to close that door and try something else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's my suggestion in, in a broad spectrum. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I'll chime in too for people who are listening that are looking at whether they want to report or not. I always mm-hmm. say go to your local advocacy center. Every county, every state has an advocacy center. And meeting with an advocate really helps you map out what that process would look like if you make those formal reports and mm-hmm. and get you that support right from the get-go. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, there's so many, like we were saying, there's so many different ways to, to get support, whether it's online, whether it's local support groups, therapy, um, you know, there's things that are free, like sport groups and stuff like that, um, that are yeah. really good tools. And yeah, advocacy centers are a great place to learn learn more. And, and if you are a survivor listening today, a great website to go to is rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. Um, and that's a national website that provides a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. I second everything you just said. <laughs> We're a good team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as we wind this up, um, I could talk to you all day, but we'll, we'll wind this down. Um, in closing, what would you like to see for victims of crime in the state of Vermont and nationally moving forward? If you could look 10 years down the road, what would you like to see for all of us? I think there's so much I would like to see, but um, again, I'll try to keep it Or maybe the thing you want to work on. Maybe that's what like, yeah, what you want to kind of work on into the future yeah. for victims. I think like to kind of sum it up is something we spoke to before is a more victim-centered procedures um, court in the court system, whatever that is. And definitely that comes with so many things from like voices being heard um, in different aspects to educating others about trauma and um, what that can look like and um, the responses to trauma and then giving victims the resources and space to heal. Um, I think my biggest envision is, is that it's more victim centered and victims are really thought about and taken more seriously and have a voice in processes. And, and, you know, that's for Vermont, this country, this world. Um, I just hope that vision someday comes true. Awesome. I think we're getting a lot closer with people like you doing the work. Um, so thank you. (laughs) And thank you so much for just being here on the show today. Um, so this was Taylor Fontaine coming on today and, I always like to close with just like a positive message, something, you know, just real short that you want to say to people listening today. Um, So what would you like to share with folks? 
Um, I think one of the things I learned in my healing journey is one positive parting thought that I will give everyone is to feel proudly. Um, and I think with that, it comes as we live in a society where we have learned that um, feeling emotions means weakness. It means um, whatever that our society believes, but it's not the truth. Um, feeling your emotions is perfectly normal and it's time that we realize that and normalize that. So my parting positive thought is to feel proudly. Mm, I love that. <laughs> I love that. And I can tell that you feel proudly. It makes me sit up a little <laughs> taller. Um, well, thank you just so much for being here today, Taylor, um, for joining us. Um, for people who do want more information about some of these crimes, I would once again suggest rain.org. R-A-I-N-N.org. Um, if you have any ideas or questions you can about the show, you can always email me, Anna, at StandUpResources.com. I'm your host, Anna Nasset, of this bi-monthly show called The Mend. Be well, be strong, and goodbye. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or feedback. We love hearing new topic ideas from listeners and watchers as well. Thank you for listening to The Mend and be well.